Okay, babe, before we get into the episode today, can we very quickly debrief on the traitors finale? I have been <gasps> dying to, hon. Top tier TV. It, I said to Issa, I was like, this surely agree with me, it is better than football. And he said <laughs> yes at that moment. I'm sure he'll retract that now, but he said yes in the moment. So guys, if you were all watching the final episodes of Traitors last week as well, then you will know that Harry Clark, a military engineer, yes, who was an OG traitor from the very start, won the show, took home the £95,000 prize money. What I think is pretty damn relevant to us is just how this is going to impact Molly Pierce, the 21-year-old disability model who Harry essentially manipulated into trusting him throughout and he only won the game because of her I mean obviously it's a game you know you're in there to win it I get that but my god I think there are going to be such serious lifetime repercussions for Molly she's never going to trust anyone ever again she's not is she I mean I did think as much as I have huge empathy for her because it's horrible to lose a game like that and 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 it was clearly so much more than a game for her he was a friend and she kept saying I'm never going to speak to you again if you, if it's you yeah <laughs> I mean she clearly she's now going to Bali with him so I think yeah. over but isn't that because he's had to say he'll take her on holiday <laughs> yeah, to make up to for the fact that he betrayed her on national telly but then I was a bit like Molly you are terrible at this I was like oh, you don't even deserve to be in the final I know but the poor girl she's clearly very vulnerable she's had chronic illness since she was 11 years old I think going on the show was a huge deal for her. She kind of yeah. says that. I think their dynamic speaks to a very common dynamic between men and women. Trusting women and manipulative men. It's a classic oh, kind of gaslighting situation. And it was interesting, wasn't it, that all the traitors, including the freshly recruited ones, after Ash went and she was, my God, she was bad, were all men. Yes, and I seem to remember last season they were mostly men as well. I know, and Claudia Winkleman did make a point of it during the cloaking bit, didn't she, when she was like, <laughs> oh, it feels like we're back in time, because it's like just men running the running They all the want to show. do it. Claudia said on the extra programme, you know, the one that's like, the additional content show, which I keep wanting to call Behind the Cloak, but it's called Uncloaked. And you just called it the additional content show. Yeah. <laughs> so sexy. <laughs> so... On Uncloaked, Claudia said that she actually chose Diane to be a traitor originally, but Diane was not having it. I found Uncloaked interesting because you can tell that Molly is gutted. She might be saying now, it's fine, we're still friends. Obviously, everyone wants to know if they're still friends. You can tell she's heartbroken. thing is, and I have complete empathy with the fact that she is you know this might be one of the few times that she's had so much social interactions and she seems like such a nice girl but it is a game and they know that when they're going in and like they're gonna be betrayed that's the whole point and she's just, just so trusting I know but that's just that that's just you know what you're what's gonna happen when you go in it's just so textbook though like I said I feel this kind of male manipulation I just yes. you see it all the time I think yes I such do you think he's like that in real life well, I'm sure he's a nice guy, but I think when he's playing the whole, oh, I'm a lovely person and I've shocked myself with how much I've been able to manipulate and scheme. Yeah, sure, sure. You yeah. clearly got it in you. You know what I mean? I don't know. That I liked him though. That's not to... Yeah, I found myself much more disturbed by Paul. Paul I found incredibly disturbing. So I did. He's quite Machiavellian. Yeah. Machiavellian, but I found it to be a more like pantomime villain vibe oh interesting because he yeah. kind of did crack under the pressure towards the end but his turning on the waterworks about his family yeah and fake crying do you want a fun fact though both oh, yeah. he paul and harry have famous girlfriends so yes. paul's girlfriend is a well-known instagrammer like a lifestyle content creator okay and harry's girlfriend is a bbc cbbc presenter and sister of Connor Maynard interesting I have to say I found myself in the last few episodes really fancying Harry which is not something I expected for myself he's not conventionally good looking but he is attractive and I was trying to explain this to Marlon because he was like why would she fancy him because I was like Molly clearly fancies oh, Harry yeah, that was so blindingly obvious. obvious he is that classic cheeky chappy that here in Britain particularly we just seem to love those characters if you will Yes. That cast type is always beloved. Another reason that I can't have quite as much sympathy for Molly as you do is I just feel like she did dirty on Jazz. And Jazz was True my that. guy. Like, oh my God, Jazz at the Christie. Yeah, and he was just like, <laughs> this was like, how can I hire this guy? He yeah. was just so clever. He was and so I, good. And I think in terms of who deserved the money, regardless of socioeconomic circumstances, which I don't think is the point of who deserves the money in this kind of game, 
Jazz played the best game and Harry played the best game. Yes. And you're they were right. the most, one of them was, was the most deserving yeah. of the money in terms of purely game gameplay. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. I think Harry deserved it for sure. I, yeah. I wasn't like sad he won. I would have been sad if he didn't win, especially because last series, again, sorry guys, but if, you don't, if you're worried about a spoiler from something several years old, I'm going to assume you're not going to watch it. <laughs> last season, the Faithfuls won. So I actually did really want a traitor to win this year, otherwise it would have been super boring. Yes. However, I have noticed a lot of backlash to Harry winning in terms of the socioeconomic thing that you mentioned in that people feel like he's not a deserving winner because he's been in a private jet. In fairness, that private jet, and I've seen him literally have to do a kind of mea culpa about this. There was a clip that the Daily Mail ran on TikTok that I saw a couple of days ago where he has to clarify that his family live in a council house. And like, yes, he's been on a private jet, but that was like one time. Clearly it was yes. kind of Maynard's jet. And in fact, his family is still very much sort of deserving of this money. And you know, he kept using yeah. them and his reason yeah. for manipulating. I'm going to do it for my family. I'm going to do it for my family. I mean, I do think obviously if you're married to someone, you have um, an economic privilege there because you can, you're, you have a safety blanket with their own wealth. But if you're just having a thing, he's like with 20, it's like his 23 year old girlfriend. Yeah, so he's not like, living off Conor Maynard's money. No, <laughs> and like, as we well know, having interviewed artists, this is complete conjecture, but I would guess that Conor Maynard is not as loaded yeah. as people might assume because he's been in a private jet once. Like, guys, I've been on a private jet once. It doesn't mean anything. Literally. It was a press trip, by the way. Exactly. <laughs> but still. And if you're going out with someone who's loaded, yeah, you might have a flashy life for that time that you're together, but that doesn't at all translate into long-term safety. Yeah. But I can see why he did feel the need to kind of do a riposte. Yes. It did make me a bit uncomfortable, the traitors, essentially like battle of the sob story. Like who is more deserving in terms of who's gone through more shit, which really ramped up towards the end. I don't know if it was necessary to go quite so hard on that. The producers clearly wanted it to be like, a face-off in terms of who's got the biggest sob story. But that's yeah. a classic reality TV move. Yeah, that's I every know. fucking X Factor style know, competition I, that there is. I thought isn't it? Traitors was a bit different. Also, I did genuinely feel very sorry for Andrew. He's had a very hard time dying on the side of the road and being brought Christ back to life and all the rest of it. Five week coma. Yeah. We're still he would never walk again. So there was legitimately a lot of sob stories. Enough about traitors. Should we get on with today's episode? On with today. Sweet honeys, you are listening to Straight Up, the pop culture podcast hosted by us journalists Kathleen and Ellie. We cover all things pop culture, Ovi, celeb gossip, insider secrets, books, films, TV, podcasts. What am I missing? Just raw, unfiltered opinion. <laughs> and no, good I'm, vibes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm drinking a glass of red on a school night. I feel I very know, naughty. Wild. Tastes good though. It's a nice Portuguese red. Cheers. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. Sending off January as we began good it. Goodbye January. Drinking. Damp. Yep. <laughs> Damp. Actually, to be fair, it's not been wet. It has been damp. Yes, I, I thought agree. it would be wet, but it's not. So apart from yeah, <laughs> apart from last Saturday, where I got really drunk and felt so bad the next <laughs> day that did. I could not move off the sofa. And guys, we'd recorded at Ellie's previously, and I left my laptop at Ellie's all day and only realised at nine thirty on Monday morning when I tried I to get out. I was wondering. I was like, oh, she'll probably just get it later. Yeah. So one January hangover, but other than that, I've been very wholesome. Well, I spent the weekend celebrating the hundredth birthday of my grandma. Oh, stop. I know we keep talking about grandparents, but, but no, she's very with it. And I must share with the listeners that she gave me the most sweet advice. So I said, I said we were having a glass of champagne. We had oh. to have the party in her bedroom of the retirement home because she can't move. Yeah, I've had um, to do that with my grandparents <laughs> yeah. before. Um, and there were like 20 of us. And some people were getting quite drunk. I was like, careful, really? no one fall on granny. Anyway, and we were having a hot tart. And I said, granny, what's the one piece of advice you would give to me now that you're 100? And she started crying, which was actually really awkward because then everyone was like, why is Elena making granny Barbara cry? And she said, find someone you love and hold them close. Oh my God, stop. And she was crying over Gerald. Oh no, because for eagle-eared listeners, they'll know that it's a recent loss. Yeah. For poor Barbara. And it was just so, and they were together for, I think, 78 years. Anyway. Oh my God, 78 years. That is extraordinary. So they got a, she got a letter from the King and Queen. Was she happy about that? Uh, she she was sort of, she wasn't, she just was quite kind of phlegmatic about it. I always think that <laughs> grandparents will be like royalists on Christmas Day. We were like, Granny, do you want to watch the Queen's speech? And she was like, no, not really. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Never mind then. <laughs> Actually, they are so sassy when they yeah. get older. We gave her a present, which was a, like an audio thing that you could listen to audio books on, but oh. like for the blind, like really clunky. And, and um, she goes... Ah, oh, I thought you were getting me a camera. 
quite a different kind yes. of a present. Anyway, so enough about um, my grandparents again. I'm desperate to know about all of our strangers. Yes, guys, I am absolutely devastated that it was snubbed from the Oscars because it was such a good film. It stars our Hans, uh, Andrew Scott and Paul Mescal. By the way, you know, we've been saying his, oh, I have at least, saying his name wrong the whole time. Oh, don't. Yes, I kind of have clocked this. It's not Mezcal, it's Mezcal. (laughs) What is wrong with us and our shocking (laughs) pronunciation? I'm so sorry, guys. Thank you for continuing to listen to us. Butcher every name. One of my worst moments is saying Camilla Cabello instead of Camilla Cabello on that YouTube video interview that I did with Shawn Mendes. And there was like literally hundreds of comments being like, his face when she gets the name wrong. He's too polite to correct her. But clearly oh, think no. I'm on my well, I got absolutely rinsed at the Telegraph for pronouncing ZZ Top double Z Top. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never heard of them before. Anyway, um, so Andrew Scott and Paul Mescal star in Andrew Haig's, I'd say it was a romantic film called All of Us Strangers, which is adapted from a 1987 novel by Taishi Yamada. Oh, I didn't know it was an adaptation. God, yes. why is everything an adaptation Everything is an days? adaptation. Well, screenwriters, come up with some new ideas, please. Where is the originality? However, I can't even say which genre it is because it will give everything away. There are several twists that make the film so much more poignant. Moody but, love story is the vibe I've been getting, having yeah, not seen it myself. Well, so it, it's Andrew Scott plays a kind of very depressed uh, and ailing screenwriter, Adam, and he's in an apartment block, uh, seemingly the only inhabitant alongside his neighbour, Harry, played by Paul Mescal. So Adam is writing a script about his parents who he lost in a car crash when he was 12. And it's kind of dreamlike in these sequences. We see him go back to his childhood home and meet his parents who are frozen in time at the age they were when they died in the car crash. So it's, they're played by Claire Foy and Jamie Bell, who are both amazing. Claire Foy in particular is incredible. Yeah. And they're probably in their early forties. But what's interesting is Andrew Scott is, remains the age he is in the present time. So we see Andrew Scott, aged 40-something, meeting his parents, rekindling with his parents, the same age. So they're oh. now all the same age. And they have these really interesting conversations, night after night, being like catching up on his life. So it's almost as if they're catching up for the first time in... T- 30 years and he's filling them in on everything that's happened in his career in his personal life he is gay and he comes out to them for the first time and which is such an interesting conversation but in a dream almost well this is what's really interesting about the film is that i don't want to give too much away but it's all very dreamlike we're not quite sure whether this is reality or dream he's or he's dissociating or it's fantasy but night after night we see him writing in his very lonely apartment and then going to his childhood home and his parents are there and they have dinner together. And I thought it was actually such a beautiful look at the things you wish you could have told your parents before they died, which is my biggest fear personally of not, of things unsaid. I worry about that all the time, like not having said, I love you or not having like told them how much I appreciate them or just actually just got to know them as people. Cause I think when you get to our age or at least like 25 or something from 25 onwards, you stop being, the kid and you try and get your you try and get to know your parents as individuals not mum and dad which can be really weird actually yeah but also very important and that's what happens and so I I found that really moving and then layered with that is this present day love story between uh Adam and his neighbor Harry played by Paul Mescal Mescal fuck's sake um <laughs> why can we not yeah. get out of our heads it's gonna be mezcal until the end of time for us now and that's it exactly and and adam adam played by andrew scott grew up you know it's the 90s so he's it's in the shadow of aids like he is still kind of terrified of close intimate contact and he's clearly not had sex for a long time and is there meant to be an age gap between the two of them in the way that there actually is in real life Yes, so I think it's very clear that for Adam, he's kind of terrified of being sexually intimate because of the fear-mongering around the AIDS crisis, whereas Paul Mescal's character is a lot more free. And so actually, interestingly, Paul Mescal's character, even though he's much younger, is kind of teaching Adam the ropes of his sexuality. And he takes him to a gay club for the first time. And there's like this amazing moment where you can see that Adam is just like so overwhelmed and joyous that like, oh, there's actually loads of us. And Andrew Haig, the screenwriter, has said it's very tied to his own personal experience. 
he says, I was 26 and going out to a gay club for the first time and seeing lots of other gay people was almost overwhelming for me because he just hadn't seen them all in one place together, just being their own authentic selves. And what was also interesting was the sex, which Andrew Haig talks about. He says that one thing he's really noticed as a screenwriter and a film director is how many liberal straight people would come up to him and say, oh, I didn't realize that a man could fuck another man while they're looking at each other. Oh my God. Because I think in a lot of portrayals on screen of queer sexual interactions, it can be, there sometimes maybe lacks nuance or it's purely sexual. And so these sex scenes between Andrew Scott and Paul Mescal are really tender and like very moving because they're, they're just so, they just feel so real. And it did make me think how, how I just don't really see that kind of queer sex scene on screen. It's getting lauded, this film, yeah. isn't it? Particularly by the gay community for being such a brilliantly kind of accurate and sensitive depiction. Yes, exactly. And um, he and Andrew Haig says, I realise people just have no idea what actually happens in the bedrooms of queer people because there are these such reductive portrayals on screen. So I have a reductive question to oh, yeah. it up with. But is it quite homoerotic? Is it giving Call Me By Your Name? Is it giving Salt Burn? No. Is I- that meant to be the kind of angle? I think eroticizing their relationship is it more about the emotional as you're saying yes I think it would definitely there aren't going to be the like thirsty memes that would feel inappropriate I think got it I think definitely the set scenes are hot in the sense of like they both look amazing and they're so attractive men yeah and they and And their chemistry is on point is it chemistry's off the charts there's something in the like restrained eroticism like Mm. so many things you don't see on on camera um but you can imagine I think that is a really hot way to film a sex scene is not actually to reveal everything. And Paul Mescal said, for the Thirsty Huns, I'm sure you would like to know, on an episode, podcast uh, interview with Louis Theroux, which I listened even though I knew I would hate it because as we all know, I hate Louis Louis Theroux's podcast. podcast. And he did insufferably go on about how famous he was. No, he did not. Did he literally do the classic Louis talking about himself the whole time? I have written notes because I was so irritated. Okay, give them to me. I love a bit of Louis Bashan. For 10 minutes, Louis Theroux goes on about how exactly Paul met Louis and how starstruck Paul was meeting Louis and how Paul grew up watching Louis' documentaries. No, I'm sorry. When you've got an hour interview, 10 minutes, that's a fifth of the whole thing. That's not that interesting how you met. That could be a quick 30 seconds jump in at the start, but it went on and not on and on. He did redeem himself because he was quite funny throughout, but... It was Louis very, was. Louis was. Yeah. And I think what was good is he, because Louis is quite um, juvenile in his humour. Yeah. And Paul did, Paul made a very inappropriate joke about Amelia de Moldenberg, I must say. Go on. Well, he said, hang on, I wrote this down as well. He said, uh, oh, he was saying to Louis, like, oh, you've, you've done Amelia de Moldenberg as in you've had her on the podcast. But then Paul was like, oh, you did Amelia de Moldenberg. I was like, I'm sorry. That's a not very 2024 thing to say. That is a co- a, an esteemed colleague and creative professional peer. Yes. Um, however, I did also think I quite like the fact that, that wasn't edited out. <laughs> <laughs> they made loads of lewd sexual jokes. Anyway, uh, but Paul said that uh, every time he gets a script, he will always imagine his character's sex life, even if the script has nothing to do with sex and there's not a single sex scene, because he thinks that's the most true way, not the most, but a highly, highly powerful way of communicating. And you can't imagine a character and how they would communicate without imagining how they would have sex. I mean, that is interesting. So do we think, therefore, that Paul might be quite a... Frisky chap. (laughs) (laughs) He also said that he really likes a walk. Oh my God. <laughs> Several listeners have sent us stuff about this. Have they? Have since, they? yes. And haven't been on the walk. And he said it on a chicken shop date. That's what listeners have sent oh. us. They, a couple of listeners have sent us clips from the chicken shop date dates where he talks about liking long romantic walks. So perhaps we were onto something, guys. But this but, TikTok rumour has some, has some legs. But then neither Amelia or Louis bring up the running away. Yeah, it must have been because they were filming months oh, before. prior. And so this whole, all this funny gossip hadn't yet yes. reached the light of day. But I have to say that listening to this interview with Paul, and he seems so nice and so open and so confident. I cannot imagine him running away. I simply can't imagine him not having the confidence. The balls yeah, the, but I didn't want to say that, but yes, yeah. the balls <laughs> to just say, I can you leave my company? 
I think he <laughs> can you leave my company now, please? <laughs> <laughs> I think he's just like a thoroughly nice man. Not going to lie, though, it's kind of giving me the ick that him and Louis being very lewd. Yes. I don't love that. The sound of it makes me feel a bit <laughs> ew. I know, it's, it is a bit like two lads kind of making weird jokes together in a cupboard. Not a cupboard, sorry, <laughs> at school. Yeah. No, I don't know what I mean. I, I know what you I'm mean. I actually flustered. know, by saying the cupboard, I actually do know what you mean. <laughs> So. <laughs> so there was a bit of a questioning in some other interviews over Paul Mescal playing a gay role. Is that appropriate when there's been so much debate over queer actors not getting enough representation on screen? Yeah. And what's the general consensus? And Andrew Haig said, I'm gay. Andrew's gay. The producer's gay. There's a bunch of gay people on this. <laughs> so that is enough. Like we don't need every single person on I mean, the production to be gay, which I think is completely yeah. fair. And he said, I always knew that I wanted Adam to be played by a queer actor because he has to have these very emotional scenes where he's coming out yeah. to his parents. And I have to say, those are the best scenes of the film was watching him, watching Andrew Scott talk about coming out. Guys, just as a refresher, Andrew Scott is the hot priest in Fleabag. Yes. If you haven't made that connection. Who is gay? Um, so in real life. In real life, sorry. Yes, exactly. So it, it makes it all the more powerful knowing he would have had to have probably those conversations with yeah. people in real life. And Claire Foy makes him feel so ashamed, but ugh, there's just so much like nuance in every conversation that you don't even end up hating her. And it's just incredibly layered. Wow. Okay. I'm, I want to see it. Yeah. It's in cinemas, right? It's in cinemas. Andrew Haig, bless him, also said that his dad has dementia. So he's recently had to almost come out for like the second time to his dad mm. because he's forgotten that his son's gay. It's just, and he even says like, just shows you never actually stop coming out your whole life. Yeah. So it's just very moving in every way and gorgeously shot and just brilliant. Oh. Very unfortunate that it was not for an Oscar because Louis made about nine jokes about how Paul Mescal was going to win an Oscar. Oh, I was no. like, they've literally Is not he? even been nominated for anything. Also, this might be conjecture, but from what you've said, sounds to me like Andrew Scott would be the Oscar winner if everyone was going to be taking home an award. Yes, he would be. Andrew Scott is 47 and my God, he looks good. He looks exceptional for that age. Wow. Wow. I assumed I, he was like 38. 47, yeah. gosh. And I saw him on the cover of Attitude Mag and he looks... Very good, I've seen that. Have you? Really hot. Exceptionally hot. Go, Andrew. Go, Andrew. Go, Andrew Haig. Two Andrews. (laughs) Double Andrews here. And go, Paul. A great success all round. Yes. Cathers, quick question for you. How much do you love film soundtracks? I've got really into them recently because I got obsessed with the Poor Thing soundtrack. And the Priscilla soundtrack I am also loving. And it sounds extremely good on our jet earphones from Flare Audio. Yes, I've got to say, I do love a little film soundtrack. I'm obsessed with the Priscilla one, especially the Ramones track at the start. And I bloody love our jet earphones as well. The clarity is just next level, thanks to Flare's very clever tech. And also, I have to say, they are so reasonably priced. I've currently still got the Idol soundtrack on repeat. It's been a while but you know how much I love The weekend. I am still banging that one out as well. Guys, you can hear so much detail in the tracks with these jet earphones that you can't with other earphones, even the most expensive ones. Also, the bass is amazing. There's no distortion. And I've heard Stephen Fry is a fan. So guys, head to flareaudio.com to get your Jet and E-Prototype earphones now. And lastly, guys, Flare have a very good competition going on right now on their Instagram to win a pair of Jet earphones completely free. All you've got to do is follow Flare Audio on Instagram, comment on their recent Elvis and Priscilla post saying what your favourite movie soundtrack is, and good luck. Do make sure you follow us at Straight Up Pod as well. Okay, so that's the cinema watch. I want to talk to you about TV. Yes. So time have dubbed expats the first must-see show of 2024. I literally don't even know what you're talking about. What is expats? Expats is a new limited series on Amazon Prime. I think it's six episodes and it stars Nicole Kidman. Mm. Do you now know? Now I'm saying Nicole is ringing some bells. It's ringing a bell because everyone's talking about her face. Yes. Quite frozen. Not to be a hater. I'll get on to that later. Oh, yeah. So the Google description is pretty vague. A look at the personal and professional lives of a tight-knit group of expatriates living in Hong Kong. So it doesn't give much away. But without giving away any spoilers. So the two first episodes dropped last week. You're listening to this on Thursday, the day we've gone live. Tomorrow, each episode is going to start to drop as per normal for a month. Right. It was created by Lulu Wang, the Chinese-American director behind The Farewell. And it was inspired by Janice Y. K. Lee's novel, The Expatriates. 
It's basically about the lives of three women which are intertwined by a profound tragedy. I am going to take a plunge and say that this is not a big spoiler because I think it's glaringly obvious from the first few minutes of the episode that there is a dead or missing child at the centre of this tragedy. Belonging to one of the three women. Belonging to Nicole Kidman. The programme starts by framing the narrative as a kind of investigation into the lives of perpetrators of accidents or tragedies rather than the victims. So what happens to them? We always talk about the people that suffered at the hands of a certain accident or tragedy, but what about you know the plane driver that accidentally crashed and killed 20 people on board what about the kid who paralyzed his twin brother when they're roughhousing and the brother falls into a coffee table oh you know gosh. no one ever looks at the person who inflicted the damage already i did find that to be an interesting conceit yes that said i can see why it hasn't got great reviews across the board so i really liked it i would like to preface this entire conversation with the fact that i love it so far it's classic rich people drama you know Ooh, like the undoing did you ever watch the undoing exactly that <laughs> nicole kidman is basically playing the same role and but also just in hong in, kong um, is it seven per- little lies seven perfect strangers nine perfect strangers yes where she plays the manager slash host of the shroom retreat yes lucy Mangan, who I often quote on the podcast, did not like Ah. this show. She gave it three stars and she said, the Hong Kong set meditation on grief, greed and racism is a languorous, beautiful looking drama. But we've seen Kidman wafting about as a sad, privileged woman far, far too many times. And then she goes on to say in the review, I never thought I would live so long as to see Nicole Kidman become one of the most boring actors of her generation. But here we are. Oh, God. Yeah. Her latest outing, Expats, is the latest in a long line of prestige television dramas in which she wafts about the place as an ethereal, privileged woman haunted by a secret sorrow that all the exquisite soft furnishings and beach views in the world cannot ameliorate. We have had her as the queen bee of moneyed Monterey society come victim of domestic violence in Big Little Lies, a bereaved therapist working through her trauma with a group of clients in a luxury spa and nine perfect strangers, and, most recently, as a successful Manhattan psychologist who begins to suspect her loving husband of murder in The Undoing as you mentioned, featuring Hugh Grant, am I right? A tour de force from Hugh Grant. It was. And unfortunately, now in Expats, it is slightly the same again. And as Lucy Mangan says, she is running on the fumes of her talents. Oh. I still think she's brilliant though. So she plays Margaret Wu, a landscape architect who gave up her job to follow her loving husband, Clark, who's played by Brian T, to Hong Kong for his. They live among many other rich expats in the most prestige apartment block in the territory. It's literally called The Peak. So it's clearly playing with that. The first episode is called The Peak. Mm. The drama plays across two timelines. The first being before the sorrow that haunts Margaret and the second being after. As I've said... I don't think it's giving too much away to suggest that Margaret's malaise is related to a dead or missing child. One thing I will personally say is that if I had children or if I was pregnant, I don't know if I'd find this really hard to watch. Okay. As a child-free woman, I can deal with that tragedy, if you know what I mean, because it feels far removed. Whereas I think, especially if I was pregnant, I'd find this super triggering and anxiety-inducing. Not to say that anyone else would, by the way. That's just But something to be aware of. Something to be aware of if dramas about missing children... Yeah. Are upsetting for you. Oh, yeah. I I don't know. I think it's an interesting one because Lucy Mangan feels how I've just said, but Variety, for example, have called it stunning and unsettling. People think it's a dazzling drama. I would be, I would like to know whether people even trust critics at this point because my God, it's just the, the polarization is wild. It really is, isn't it? I toe somewhere in between the two. I have very much enjoyed watching the first two episodes. It's glossy. As I said, it's rich people drama. There's beautiful homes. You get to see inside the lives of these incredibly wealthy elite people in Hong Kong. Which must be based on... Fact. On real life, to some extent. Well, it must. The lifestyle, I mean. However, I did see quite a damning criticism on Google. So this reviewer on Google said... The show had amazing potential, particularly with its Hong Kong setting. It's definitely a high quality show, but produced by people with a very poor or very little understanding of the city. The liberties they chose to deviate from the original book seemed too out of place and came across as just weird. But such decisions were probably made to save money, moving storylines away from Korea, for example. Mm. So it must have been a transnational tale in the book, whereas here it's only set in Hong Kong. I see, okay. That being said, the book's premise and setting are fresh and interesting enough to provide a compelling viewing for most audiences. People from Hong Kong, and in particular long-time expats, will grimace at a sloppy execution at times, though. Well, that's annoying. Yeah. It's a shame because it's, it can't be that difficult to get a good grasp of what it's like to be an expat. I know so many people that have moved to Hong Kong. Well, you would think, wouldn't you? It's hardly a very limited perspective. Yeah. You could 
crowdsource that information. Yeah. I mean, I've never personally been to Hong Kong, but I really enjoyed the portrayal of the geographical place for that reason, because it gave me a sense of place. Yeah. And I loved that. However, if it's not correct, then, you know, that is a little so, bit questionable. Is it a thriller? Yes. I would say it is indeed a thriller. A kind of slow moving deconstruction of grief of privilege of race of class of elitism oh this is giving the usual big ticket topics you know what i mean like the classic nicole kidman big glossy show i'd love to know what you guys think when you watch it i really want to know what you think Uh, i think that critics sometimes need to realize that people aren't always watching it for the caliber we're watching it because it looks nice and we're tired and it's a monday it's exactly that it's a fun show to watch glossy compelling nothing new probably quite forgettable but nonetheless enjoyable watching and so give me the lowdown on nicole's face because i was like everyone was talking about it in the office well i saw quite a funny commenter that said for the love of god can someone please tell producers and directors that nicole kidman is 56 (laughs) (laughs) so she plays the mother of three youngish children yeah so you know from 14 to 6 or something the children's ages are and as much as that is a little bit jarring like that's not super realistic I still have to say that personally I would rather that I'd rather a woman of 56 be playing a mother like that than a woman of 22 yeah you know what I mean yes absolutely agree and I think hats off to them at least for choosing a woman who is above the age of 40 for once instead of constantly casting women in their 20s and 30s to play mothers of three you know (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) I like that so I don't have hate for the Nicole casting in that respect she has had a lot of work done her face is quite frozen she needs to stop with the work it's weird though because sometimes she will look really good and then sometimes it's work on work it is I mean it is very much not gonna lie it's not even a role that's all that far off from say the others oh remember that? I do remember that that was really, horror I think I need to watch because I think it was meant to be one of Nicole Kidman's best film eyes wide shut yes I've seen that but you literally years ago I watched that at a sleepover were you quite shocked by this there was this a horrible rape scene isn't there I couldn't remember babe I literally watched it as like a teenager oh god yeah probably far too young for it it was a sleepover movie well I think this is a good opportunity for us to talk about this very upsetting trend that I keep seeing written about of young kids actual children using anti-aging products it's really sad and quite scary isn't it I first kind of noticed it around Christmas did you see that there was a sort of I think she was about 12 a young girl's Christmas list went viral and it had like junk elephant drops skims underwear and all these things that clearly she's picked up from social media skims yeah like very adult products I didn't that see it just felt, it felt really sad <gasps> actually and lots of people were criticizing this young girl like kids today whereas actually I was on the side of the fence that was like what a sad reflection of how pressurized young girls feel my god we thought it was bad when we were growing up can you imagine what it's like now to watch all these videos on TikTok or wherever and you look up to these influencers who have a 12-step routine and you think that's what you need to do? I only started using cleanser when I was about 20 fucking four. I was using soap and water prior to that. I think I first, um, I remember using foundation for the very first time in first year uni. I remember. Oh my God, that's Al- my cute. Okay, Alice so I had on. Dream Matt Moose, which was iconic. Yes, that's which, I had yeah, Dream. Um, I used that at school because I went to an all girls. Actually, you went to an all girls school. All the girls in my school were like lathering on the makeup. I never did because I wasn't part of that group. And I remember seeing them do it and was kind of shocked. But I don't know. I, I'm sure I put concealer on, but I, I just remember not ever having put foundation on. And then I put it on and I was like, my God, I look good. Okay, so my school was in Hounslow. So the orange tan was a oh, the big orange tan. for all swathes of the school society. So I read uh, an article in The Cut uh, recently and the opening genuinely made me feel very scared for this generation. I'm just going to read out the beginning. Every weekday, Carson Bradley wakes up to the sound of her alarm at 4am to squeeze in enough time for her basic skincare routine, which usually takes around 25 minutes before her day begins. She sets the mood, puts on a silk pink robe, lights a candle and plays music. Then she gets to work, double cleansing, applying toner, vitamin C serum, glycolic acid, salicylic acid, finishing off with two different types of moisturiser. She goes on. Then she does it all again before bedtime with the addition of a few more eye creams, patches, and over-the-counter retinol. Occasionally, she'll (gasps) use a gua sha. Retinol on a small... Like, you shouldn't even be using retinol before the age of 40, full stop. Despite what it sounds like, Bradley isn't doing this to combat existing wrinkles. She's 14 years old. Oh, my God. And she posted a TikTok of the skincare routine to her 36,000 followers. 
And she said, here are some of the things I do to slow down the aging process as a 14 year old. I started doing most of these things at 12. This include getting into a car with a piece of paper taped to the window to block out UV rays. And it goes on about, and I just thought like. Just utter insanity, isn't it? This is wild. And then the New York Times had a piece uh, this week as well about how um, Gen Z is aging like milk with all these young girls obsessed with the fact that they look over 30. Yeah, they're really afraid of turning 30, Gen Z, apparently. I mean, I'm saying that like I'm literally about a thousand years old. But there was a video doing the rounds on TikTok recently that has spurned a lot of these think pieces of a woman who I think was 28 and shared a video of herself and said, this is what a natural, unfiltered, 28 year old face looks like with no makeup and no work done she was stunning this girl is like stunning conventionally attractive by every metric and young people were horrified they were like she looks terrible this woman looks so old if i look like that i'm gonna die i think that that generation have lost touch with what a normal face is i oh, totally. keep reading about this because and can you blame them you know de- de-aging on films with films like martin scorsese mm. ai filters baby botox is being like given to early to, I watched a short film and it was all about these like 14 year olds obsessing over whether to get Botox or the fact that their friends were getting Botox so at like sad, 18 isn't it? and it's like I'm 30 and I was literally told by one of the top plastic surgeons in the country not to go anywhere near Botox and that I'm way too young for it yeah well sorry 32 trimmed off a couple of years there yeah <laughs> <laughs> but you know um that I've seen people who are 22 who have smile lines but that's just the way their face is not it's, it's not like forehead lines. if you have forehead lines that's usually because that's just how your face is exactly we have lost we've completely lost the reality of a normal face but didn't you see that in all the discourse around Kylie Jenner last week at Paris Couture Fashion Week yeah I very actually, interesting oh uh, but I now have lost I don't know what does I was actually looking at that video of her being like, I now no longer know. So, so many people were commenting and and saying that the reason, I don't know if you guys saw, but there was one particular video of Kylie that was, of course, just like an unedited press video where you can see dips, I suppose, in between her kind of cheekbone and eye socket. Yeah. That is probably just normal shadowing on someone's face. We're so used to seeing her look overly edited and perfect that when we see any shadow on her face it looks wrong so personally I didn't think it looked that bad don't know about you um I I was thinking about this I thought she looks in her 30s but I also think that that's to do with just how old she looks generally and I don't mean old in a bad way I mean like this is a girl who at 16 looked 25 because of her aesthetic do you know what I mean how she presents and while a lot of criticism is saying that her face is a kind of real-time example of the long-term impact of filler. And lots of plastic surgeons are jumping in. I've seen about a thousand videos on TikTok with various clinicians arguing about why she has these kind of dips, saying that it's to do with filler. But the most compelling argument I saw that I think it's absolutely about is just that it's a Zempic face. Crazy. She's yes. lost a drastic amount of weight. Anyone that follows the Kardashians will tell you that they are 100% all on a Zempic. They have dropped an insane amount of weight in the last couple of years. It's highly obvious what they're doing. So they, yeah, they've got a Zempic face and then they're pumping their face full of fillers. Yes, but I do think that the main cause of these dips in her face is the drastic weight loss rather than the filler yeah. itself. It's probably the combo, to be honest. Yes, that's this what I was thinking, the, the contrast between yes. fake plumpness. And this is a really big issue. We don't know the long-term impact of filler. So people, especially 14-year-old girls, my God, they should not be doing this because we don't have the evidence yet, the scientific evidence to really vindicate it being safe or looking good long-term. Lots of plastic surgeons say that it's very possible that while filler looks great in the moment and great for five years, we just don't know what that's going to do in 40 years. No. And we're seeing it all the time with lips and the migrating filler and the fact you never can really, you can never properly dissolve it and it goes elsewhere in your face. Yeah. Uh, and even uh, things like, I think I mentioned this in the episode where we talked about skincare and I talked about all the advice that I got when I was my, got microneedling at the London Regenerative Institute. But the plastic surgeon there, Dr. Anna Pekka, said to me that even hyaluronic acid filler, which has become a really big thing recently, because everyone's like, oh, it's just hyaluronic acid. It's kind of natural. It'll disperse in your face. Like, no, terrible. She's been doing facelifts with people where they've had to literally, sorry, but peel people's faces back and see this hyaluronic acid gathered around the muscles in the face, unable to break up and go into the bloodstream. Fuck me. I was speaking to someone who is um, a plastic surgeon the other day, and she said the only thing she would recommend is a facelift once you need it. Interesting. Put nothing in your face, apart from maybe 
baby Botox. But like, if you're going to do anything, just do a facelift when you need it. Yeah. I was like, take my number. (laughs) I will (laughs) review one of those. (laughs) I I think Kylie doesn't, I did not think Kylie looked terrible though. I think that was... I, I think you're so right. I think she has a very mature aura. And also the makeup. She was very heavy glam makeup. Yeah, they're always in show makeup. And that's what's kind of jarring about the Kardashians is that it looks flawless on camera. But in real life, you can tell that they're wearing three foot of foundation. Yes. I've even found when I've had it. my makeup done professionally, yeah. I don't really like how it looks. I feel like my skin looks worse than it actually is. I feel like having really heavy face makeup makes it look like it's covering something up that isn't even necessarily there. I look way older if I wear foundation. It goes in all my creases, all my fine lines are worse. I only wear tinted moisturizer, which I got you hooked on. Yes, the Bare Minerals. Bare Minerals. My absolute fave. I've been using it religiously for the last couple of years since yes. you recommended it. Love it. I mean, there are some people that age, that they look much older, much younger, but then they're kind of frozen forever or at least for like 20 years that they kind of maintain their like prematurely aged face for like 20 years and then you start to look older than them yeah it's just all very depressing i mean one of the girls that was quoted 22 year old caroline bennis said even if i get tired of doing my very complicated skincare routine i just push through it knowing that at the end of the day it's all going to be worth it because eventually it's going to be like wow you're 40 years old and you don't even look like you're 20 the deep irony is is no it's not because you're lathering your face in product that it doesn't need and it's going to make your skin worse Yes. And also, as we've said, like skincare doesn't regenerate like at a deep enough level that it will make any difference to aging. It's all surface level. And also how sad that at 40, you want to look 20. Why would you want to look 20 at 40? It's this deep rooted fear of aging, I guess. Yeah. But it's, I mean, I have a real problem with my, my, I'm obsessed with my smile lines being really pronounced. And it's always says to me like, but they're so pretty. Like it's so nice to see smile lines. Yeah. You'd look bloody weird if you got those. Well, yeah, I can't. I filled in. I think you'd have to get tear trough filler, which scares me. Oh dear, well, it's all very depressing and I just feel very sorry for 12-year-old girls now. Even in this film that I was talking about, it was all about these poor girls who were literally being invited into WhatsApp groups where they were then all mocking their physical appearance. That's just so sad, I can't deal. Yeah, and she was on depressants and on antidepressants and using makeup as a way to escape. So it's all a vicious cycle. Basically all rooted back to the chronic self-esteem issue that's plaguing young women at the moment, isn't it? Sad because I was hoping it would get better, not worse. I thought it would get better. Although I have to say, seeing, I'm not going to name and shame them because it's mean, but there are some celebrities who I've seen recently where I'm like, oh my God, you look really weird. You actually look way older. You look full of filler in the worst way. And it's actually putting me off. I think I, when we were talking about it, like maybe two months ago, I think I was always like, oh, I'm sure I'll get filler and Botox. I'm becoming more and more averse to it as I get older. So for my fellow Huns who watch a bit of The Real Housewives of Beverly yeah. Hills, please message me and let me know what you think about PK's work. Sorry to be a snide bitch, but my God, PK. PK being Dorit Kemsley's husband, who is also manager of Boy George. He's oh. had a drastic facelift and my God, it looks weird. Oh God. He doesn't look good. It looks very strange. But I don't think they realise because it's also... I think he thinks he looks good. And I'm like, yeah. you looked far better as like a jowly middle-aged man instead of this weird facelifted version. There's one pop, huge pop star who I've seen do a video recently and I was taken aback at how lumpy her face looked. And she clearly doesn't realise. And that's in a music video. I'm surprised because um, I thought that would be... No, she's, it's, like an, it's like an Instagram video where she's talking oh, okay, about a new yeah, yeah, single. Yeah. But clearly she thinks she looks good although she wouldn't have posted it. And I was just shocked that she would post it because she looked awful but she must think it looks great right Cathers shall we discuss American Nightmare yes I have been dying to talk to you about this show since it dropped on Netflix I think just over a week ago it zoomed up the charts to number one I think it's settled back down now to number two but fascinating stuff And so relevant to our thoughts on the media. It really is. So guys, if you haven't yet seen American Nightmare, it is a three-part docuseries on Netflix. It's made by the female filmmakers Felicity Morris and Bernadette Higgins, who also made The Tinder Swindler. Didn't they also make Don't Fuck With Cats? I think I interviewed Felicity Morris about that. Really? I didn't know that. Yes, I think they're a really fab production company. Raw, they're called. Really good. And quite centred on female-centric stories, kind of exposing institutional misogyny, which this is very much about. So if you haven't seen it, guys, 
It follows what happened to a woman named Denise Huskins in 2015 when she was accused of pulling a real-life Gone Girl hoax after her boyfriend Aaron Quinn reported a harrowing kidnap story to police when she showed up alive two days later. The documentary follows what happened, as I mentioned in three parts, with the first focusing on Aaron Quinn, the boyfriend. Initially, you think that perhaps he's been involved in her disappearance. So he tells this story to police about burglars breaking into their home at night, them being... In wetsuits. In wetsuits, (laughs) them being uh, tied up, Huskins, as in Denise, being told to tie up her partner, Aaron Quinn, him then both being restrained with blacked out swimming goggles put on their heads and headphones over their ears that were playing voices. Wind chimes. Yes, wind chimes and then different voices yeah. with instructions. Yeah. Very far out. I, I think would, we can all agree. If someone told me that, I would be like, are you sure you weren't having a mental dream? Like at first I was like, surely it was blatantly the boyfriend. Yeah. You know, that's the classic thing. It's always the boyfriend um did you think he was being shady because you don't realize in the first episode whether it might you know you don't know i I was kind of skeptical just because it did seem such an incredible story yes it's presented in that way on purpose though right yes and i also felt i don't know about you but you watched footage of him in the um, interrogation room at the police station and he seemed so like um not bothered and I, i was like why are you not distressed although i think in hindsight it's because they'd been drugged So they've been given NyQuil. They've been forced to drink something to make them sleepy. And I think he was still a bit out of it. And that's why he's not like super passionately defending himself or begging that they go out and look for Denise. Because that's the issue really at first as well is that you almost want to scream at the screen because the police are not looking for her. They're like, we think we know she's dead. We know that you're essentially a murderer who's hidden her body somewhere. What have you done? Yeah. Rather than being like, let's go out and look for these people that have kidnapped her in the middle of the night is she even still alive yes yeah 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 at first it's it's almost like being too pro-woman and anti-man and then it like completely flips yes so guys basically what happens as mentioned is that denise turns up two days later which puts paid to the police's theory that quinn has killed her yes and during the second episode, you really get an idea of the way the media is influencing the public perception and indeed like the police perception of the case. So five months before Gone Girl had come out with Rosamund Pike and Ben Affleck, uh, with Rosamund Pike playing someone who fakes her own murder to get revenge on her cheating husband. Yeah, it was based on the 2012 book by Gillian Flynn. And this story is what completely shaped the police response to the crime. So when Huskins told her story to authorities the day after having turned up in Huntington Beach. So by the way, guys, that was a part of the story that people also deemed incredible is that she was kidnapped in California in Vajayo. And then she turned up hundreds of miles away in Huntington Beach where her parental home was. So Huskins attorney, Doug Rappaport, who features in the series, he says they're looking at her like she's a piece of trash, like she's a criminal about the police. He then asked one of the FBI agents what the deal was, because they're like, hello, she's clearly a victim in this awful crime. What the fuck is going on? Rappaport recalls the FBI agent said, haven't you seen the movie Gone Girl? So yeah, as you said, only five months before the film had come out, police then set the tone. The story had begun with the whole, like, it must have been the boyfriend thing. And the police actually, instead of paying real attention to Denise's story, which matched exactly, by the way, her boyfriend Aaron Quinn's in terms of what had happened when the home invasion had happened. They went public with saying Denise had wasted police time, that they were going to press charges against her, and that the entire thing was essentially, yes, a Gone Girl hoax. It is that classic thing of the media latching onto a narrative simply because it is the most exciting story, even though it is clearly the least likely reality. So the, the main detective on the case who is interviewing Aaron Quinn at the start is Matt Mustard. <laughs> what he, a name. I know. He literally is like a character from, yeah. a, from a detective series or something, isn't it? It doesn't seem real. And we were watching his tactics while he's trying to kind of break Aaron Quinn, saying, we know this isn't true. We know you killed her. Marl and I were literally going... This guy has seen too much TV. 
Right, this man so is true. playing a detective based on all the detective stuff that he's watched. And I really feel like those detectives had watched so many detective shows that they were basing their actual professional lives on what they'd seen on TV. We literally said that, then two minutes later, oh, lo and behold, the police decide that the entire case is just another gone girl. Come on, guys. I know, is it, like, is it because they just don't want to have to do the work and it's much easier to wrap it up? Or is it because it's a much sexier story for them to be on top of? I mean, I think it was a massive case of institutional misogyny, for sure. Yes, and the fact that it clearly at first is a reason why, as you often get with these blue-eyed blonde women, it's very upsetting to see. They get like huge amounts of media coverage a la Madeleine McCann whilst like, say, black women. Well, exactly, this is the issue. It kind of feeds into that whole white woman the perfect victim i read a great piece in glamour actually and i don't always love glamour's journalism but this one was excellent it was by stephanie mcneil and the headline was american nightmare on netflix is every woman's worst fear realized american nightmare asked a crucial question when a woman reports being kidnapped and raped to law enforcement what does it take for them to believe her an eyewitness physical evidence literally being stolen from her home in the middle of the night for denise huskins the answer astoundingly was none of the above yes i found that the most powerful bit in the documentary when she's talking about all the time she's been molested and the yes fact that, this is the third time she's been assaulted yeah, and, and she's like do you literally need me to be beaten up and my vagina to be lacerated? i mean she doesn't say this but i'm paraphrasing like essentially the laceration the minor lacerations when they did the sexual assault exam weren't major enough for them to take it seriously as rape it's to them because it wasn't violent enough she, she didn't look fucked up But actually, she explains in the documentary why it wasn't a violent sexual assault. The kidnapper manipulated her. Yes, exactly. He forced her to make it look consensual as collateral damage so that he could use the video as collateral damage against her. Yeah, to stop her from going to the police. I found it heartbreaking because when she talks about the assault that she experienced at a house party when she was 19, she says that she went to the police and it was basically not pursued because of a lack of evidence. So then for this to happen as she says in the documentary. And here I am, literally taken in the middle of the night, my body stolen and violated, and they still don't believe me. I don't know what needs to happen to me, what needs to happen to any woman for them to be believed. It just seems hopeless. It's that. They literally want to see a fucking corpse is what they want. For, to have sympathy for yeah. female victims. And I found the involvement of the journalist at the San Francisco Chronicle, Henry Lee, really interesting. So guys, again, if you haven't seen the documentary, the kidnapper actually sent like evidence, i.e. a voice recording of Denise, a proof of life recording. He also sent stuff about who he was, why Denise should be believed, how the hoax wasn't real. As the police were saying, she's wasted police time. She's instilled fear into the hearts of our community like we're gonna get go for her this kidnapper was sending evidence to this journalist who was hounding the police about it and they were just completely ignoring him he said he couldn't get through he rang and rang and rang no one was interested and it's so interesting isn't it um the fact that these criminals want attention they were he was so upset at the idea that his crime wasn't being validated matt miller we should say by the way guys so eventually denise is kind of vindicated in so far as Because of another crime in Dublin, yes, Dublin, USA, it all unravels because Matt Miller, the perpetrator, is arrested in connection with another crime. And I think what's really, I guess, heartening about the documentary is that there is one police hero. And she's female. The woman police officer who (laughs) had actually gone into the police force because of a friend going through a sexual assault. She says that was the catalyst for her wanting to be a police officer. And so she's almost made it her mission clearly to like, support women to believe women and to lock perpetrators of sexual violence away and it's only because of her that everything came together isn't it yeah denise would have just been literally a figure of public ridicule for the rest of her life potentially if that hadn't happened but they talk about the impact that it's had on their lives and denise said that she got horrific amounts of trolling as soon as the police basically confirmed the media narrative that it was a gone girl hoax it's just wild. And literally, the Gone Girl comparison begins and ends at the fact that they've both got long blonde hair and they're beautiful. Well, I guess the comparison was that woman goes missing, husband's presumed to have murdered her, then she turns up. Because yeah. that's exactly what Rosamund Pike's character does. That's true. But had she had brown hair and was maybe like short and plump, would that have... I'm sure that that, that couldn't have had then had worked in the media in the same way. Yeah, perhaps I not. I felt I like know. the image, the image resemblance was so... And even the, the documentary was kind of hamming that up where they kept having the clips of Rosamund Pike. Covered in blood, like yeah. staggering up the front path. 
I mean, as much as I liked the documentary, I did also still feel a discomfort of a kind of sens- sens- sensationalizing of these stories for the consumption of people at home. It kind of does tie into this whole ethics of true crime reporting yeah. debate that we keep touching on, doesn't it? Because most people are watching it at home as pure entertainment, like, wow, I'm so glad that this has ha- hasn't happened to me. And they're there, like, wanting to hear all the gruesome stories about the rapes. Like, we heard such gruesome stories about the rapes, and I do wonder whether we needed to hear all of that. I know what you mean. I thought there was a really interesting piece by Leila Latif in The Guardian on True Crime Brain. And she basically says, the plethora of podcasts, documentaries and bingeable TV series has led to swathes of the global population be infected by a condition known as True Crime Brain. So many tales of white suburban women's abduction and annihilation have fueled both content and extreme paranoia, although queer, black and indigenous women have far more reason to feel at risk than the women who feature here. I thought that was very interesting. It kind of goes hand in hand, doesn't it? With what you touched on with Madeleine McCann, the missing white woman syndrome. And Sarah Everard. Yes. The perfect victim. You know, she was just on her way home, all covered up. She hadn't been drinking. You know, she was wearing an anorak. She didn't have any skin out. As if any of that matters. No, exactly. But to the media, it was a perfect victim because she wasn't asking for it. But isn't that, I guess, what's interesting about American Nightmare in that it's tapping into the press... And the police is perhaps idea of a perfect victim. But in this case, even though she fit the bill perfectly, she wasn't the perfect victim because she even, even though her story fit the whole like stranger rape narrative as mm. well, which is also usually one of the ones that's more believable for police, it still wasn't enough for her to actually be believed. Yes, but I think once they, once a story didn't tie into the neatness of a victim of, uh, you know, she was dropped home by her kidnappers, uh-oh, that doesn't make sense yeah. to the police anymore. I mean, I was mad sceptical, I have to say. I mean, when I was first watching it, you're like, what the hell? She turns up looking all like blasé. Yeah. Actually, they then explain that her eyes are taped shut behind the yes. sunglasses. But you think she's just like chilling, hanging exactly. out. But you do think, okay, once they can't put her into the neat victim box, you'll think they, she's kind of put into the, the mastermind siren, you know, the beautiful, yeah. like, manipulative woman, which I think is another trope. It's insane how much popular culture, fan culture, internet culture really does uh, shape our media and the way society runs. One thing I have to say, though... I did feel like there were quite a few holes in the documentary. I don't know if you noticed, but guys, again, if you haven't seen it, there's a character called Angela. Yeah, mentioned early on. Angela, I say character. I always say character. I mean, like, <laughs> but it's just actually them. just yeah, points at what we were just saying. Yeah. So Angela is the ex-fiance of Aaron Quinn. When Aaron Quinn, the boyfriend of Denise Hutchins, is being questioned by the police, they're obviously trying to get to the nuts and bolts of what was how was their relationship stable? It, was there a reason for him to want to kill her? He admits that there had been tension in their relationship because he'd been texting his ex-fiance Angela, who his parents touch on had in fact I think had an affair or something. He'd been devastated when she yes, left him. She cheated on him. Yeah, yes. that was it. Angela is a weird figure, isn't she? The whole thing gets even more complicated when it's explained that Angela has been going out with the guy with the FBI agent yes. David someone yes and also that the kidnapper was meant to have been kidnapping Angela in the first yeah. place and they never really explain that the documentary just ends and you're like what what was Angela's role here why is no one digging into the fact that she was meant to be the victim, apparently. I wondered whether she'd hired Matt Muller. So Matt Muller, the guy who was actually done for this eventually, guys, uh, claimed he told Denise that he was a kidnapper for hire. Mm. How yes. much of that is true? We because don't know. The, 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 the way the rapes are conducted as well is he's kind of presenting it as I'm being forced to do this for video footage for the people that hire me. Okay, so David Sesma was his name. He was the lead FBI agent on the case. And what American Nightmare infers is that David Sesma, because of his relationship with Angela, shut down the case. And that's partly why the police refused to look at it as an abduction. And the FBI, as I say, it was taken to the higher levels, not just the local police, weren't interested. And why the FBI were determined to label her a hoaxer and actually press criminal charges to Denise. Some kind of weird... It's very Manipulation from David Sesma there. I think it's very strange. Like, Matt Mustard, to go back to the detective I mentioned earlier, literally won Officer of the Year that year after having bungled that case. 
Yes, I mean, it's honestly ridiculous that he's called Matt Mustard, particularly when what we've been saying the whole time is that so many of these details of these true crime stories feel like they've been written for a TV show. It's bonkers, like Aaron Quinn saying on the show, almost by accident, we find out that the lead case agent, David Sesma, used to date my ex, Angela, who is the intended target for this whole thing. He absolutely should not have been on that case. Like, what, what are the chances of that? So I've read a theory that FBI agent David Sesma hired Matthew Muller to abduct Denise. He'd had a prior relationship with Angela just before she'd started seeing Aaron and he knew that Matt Muller was a local peeping Tom and hired him to commit the act. Had the power to turn the investigation on Aaron and Denise and the ability to dismiss the associates saying Muller acted alone. So I didn't touch on this earlier, but A, Matthew Muller was, in fact, it all came out, a local peeping Tom. Yes. And B, he claimed that he was working with other people. Denise and Aaron absolutely bought this. They're convinced that he was working with other people, that someone else was involved in this. Denise even talks at one point about when she was being held captive at the Lake Tahoe cabin, she heard another car pull up. Yeah. These associates have never, ever been recognised. No. They were never covered when in Matthew Muller's trial. He's gone to jail for a very long time, I think like 40 years. He absolutely admitted his wrongdoing, pled guilty, all the rest of it. Said he was sickened with shame by his actions. I think there's a massive inference that he's very mentally unwell right yeah that would make and that sense would, that was why he i guess has all this kind of paranoia he was also by the way ex-military and said that he suffered with ptsd oh interesting he told denise that remember when they yeah him, which was true as well yeah. so he fed her real bits of information but yes that was so odd him just like giving away giving all these person and then being like by the way don't tell anyone that worked in the military <laughs> like really like major <laughs> when he drops her off identifying facts there did you think that there are other people involved i don't know because i felt like th- him listening to his french pop and uh in the house and it oh, was so like, creepy wasn't it it's it, like being in a real life horror film yeah and him being like weirdly polite and then i i felt like it it suggested that he could be this really fucked up lone wolf yeah and maybe they just assumed it was more people because of the ferocity with which he did the home invasion yeah and he made it seem like there were more people in the room but actually if they were drugged and had headphones and things on their eyes he could have just created that perception but in fact was acting alone the entire time i don't know it felt like he was it was it was almost too quirky to be an operation but again it's too coincidental why the hell would angela be the intended target. Why did he say that? We never get to the bottom of that. He never admitted it, Matt Muller. Why was David Sesma so desperate to shut down the case and turn the investigation onto Denise and Aaron? Do we think that Angela is maybe like the head honcho of a kidnapping ring? Well, I wondered if Angela had tried to get Denise kidnapped as like a jealousy thing and said to the kidnappers, say you meant Angela to like throw them off the scent. That seems the most likely scenario to me. And David Sesma is like, oh God, this could be, Angela's done this. I better cover it up for her so she she doesn't go down. I don't know. So the moral of the story is probably the woman's fault. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's actually not funny, but. No, but um, serious questions need to be asked of Angela. Yeah, bizarre, bizarre stuff. I mean, you know, it's also misogynistic to not treat women as potential of criminality. This is actually the year of the female criminal leader. Go on. (laughs) Griselda on Netflix. Yes, I watched that. I didn't love it. And also... I love Sofia Vergara. And I thought it was really interesting in terms of what we've been talking about recently, especially on May, December, with whether filmmakers have a right to use someone's likeness and life story. Oh, yeah. Because... Griselda's family are not happy at all. They're trying to sue Netflix and Sofia Vergara. Shit. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Also, Fesco's badass but quite awful grandmother was like the female drug queen pin. In Euphoria. In Euphoria. Fesco being Angus Cloud's character. R.I.P. Angus. Yeah. Gorgeous Angus. Oh, God, yeah, that was... She was amazing, that grandma, wasn't she? Yeah, just shooting everyone's knees. Yes, although quite how you've decided that's an example of this being the year of the female criminal, I don't know, since that came out like five yes. years ago, but yeah. Just a kind of <laughs> vague feeling vague that I have. female criminal somewhere. They do exist, right? We did, in fact, an entire episode on this in relation to time. Oh, yeah. If you yes. would like to go back and listen to that, that was much more recent. Right. 
Um, we hope you enjoyed the episode. We do. We've been chatting quite enough. We need to go and have dinner. What are you we having do. tonight? I think S has made something, but I don't know what. Normally we can smell it. Can yeah, you smell it? Yeah, there'll be a tantalising smell of lamb wafting through mm, or something. A slow-cooked lamb. What oh, are you having? I'm having spaghetti bolognese. Oh, lovely for a Monday. I batch cooked about a week or so ago and put some in the freezer and we've got it left. So you're going to nip With that beef? Out. With beef, yep. I always think you're going to go vegan. That is my biggest fear with you. No, God, no. I love meat. I know. And actually, if anything, I've come round to realise the long and short of it is, as I'm sure my other healthy huns will know, is that meat is in fact good for you. Yes. So yeah, I, I've always been very wary of faux meats. I think they're gross. They make your tummy feel bad and they're massively processed. Good. What's that one that begins with S? Um, it's called like... Satan. Satan. I was radically upset stomach-wise by when I ate. <laughs> it was very... It was literally gluten, so... Oh, fuck me. I was not well. So, yeah, spag bowl, my trick. I know it's meant to be half veal, half pork. That's actually tradish. Most people do it with beef, but I do beef and then two Italian sausages squeezed out the skins for good measure. Oh, lovely. Bit of flavour. Lovely, Cathers. I love a fennel and sausage pasta. Yes. One Yummy. of my favourites. Mm. I had a bleaker burger solo on Friday night. Did you? It's my thing. I as a delivery? As a delivery. I don't even get it with chips. Absolutely no sauces. Just a bleaker burger solo. Aren't you starving? Just the burger? No, you've got to have chips. That's mental behaviour. No, because though. I don't like takeaway chips. They're always, and they do always get cold. Yeah. What I like to do is put them in the oven. Like if I get McDonald's, I turn on the oven and I chuck the chips in the oven on a tray for a couple of minutes and it really firms them, them up. I've been very disappointed. Release of life. Mm, okay. I think I'd rather frozen chips. But no, when I get the bleaker burger, I like having it on its own. There's something quite pure about it. It's just so good. Yummy. Yeah. Anyway, uh, do leave us a review at Straight Up Pod on Instagram. Please do. Keep the... Apple uh, reviews especially, beloved. Oh, yeah. If we do indeed get five more, we will find some more secret gossip for you. Lots of secret gossip. Also, thank you to the Huns who have sent us really amazing emails joys and regrets of motherhood yeah in anticipation of our big kids question we know we investigation keep... but we keep talking about it it couldn't be more topical did yeah. you not see the front of stylist last week yes. i sent that to you didn't yes. i where is motherhood really that bad so yeah keep your experiences coming in and we are going to get into it all very very soon yeah it's dropping in march guys i've actually had quite a few friends being like um you've literally been teasing it for nine weeks <laughs> have we actually, actually yeah, oh my God. Yeah. sorry guys That's super annoying it is genuinely coming soon march yeah um, okay. Love you guys. Love you. Have fabulous weeks, weekends, whatever you're doing. Bye.